Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, free cash flow. This is a, uh, the end of the financial statements, and as I said today, we will actually open up, all of us, just as a happy family, open up Excel, and I'm going to show you a few of the little tricks and quick, uh, quick things that we do when we're working in Excel. Now, certainly that um, Excel project that you've got, the Excel crash course, that's your main learning vehicle, and then we do some of that here in class. Also, I've had a couple of students ask me, when is that due? Well, ideally, you do it as quickly as you can. I mean, technically, by the end of the semester, you have to have it done so I can add the extra credit to your midterm and to your final. But the earlier you start it, the better. But I'm not putting a deadline on it because some of you are just going to breeze through it and some of you are going to plow. It's going to take you longer to get through it. Uh, some people's minds just don't work uh, the way Microsoft wants them to. So uh, at your pace, just get started and get finished with it. Also, be sure at the end, now I'm supposed to get reports on how you're doing and how you did, but just get a screen capture at the end when you finish to, to show that you actually got it done, just in case they drop the ball uh, at uh, the uh, company. But other than that, we're going to have a look at the numbers here today just to see how bad it is or how good it is. Now, something interesting was setting up today, and sure enough, it is actually doing that today. And I made a really stupid investment call, and I'll show you what I did, why I did it, and don't do it, okay? But I'll show you that one here in a minute. But first of all, we're going to have a look at the numbers. Let me turn on the... Uh, uh, overhead here. Now, you may already see why this is a weird day. It's, it happens, and I've seen it on a different occasion. But uh, as far as anything else goes now, is, uh, uh, Madam, is this a bull or a bear day? You just don't have a bear, it's a bear day. <laughs> You're just not being, showing the enthusiasm. And there's the Federal Reserve Chairman's ugly ass uh, looking at us. You ever notice that people in high places in government always look like ugly pe or ugly people? Uh, okay, here's the thing. Look at, look at the odd thing. Normally, information has greater impact the greater the risk. And the, uh, that would mean that the Dow is usually the least impacted this S&P 500 is more, and then the NASDAQ is the most impacted by information. Here, you've got the opposite happening. The Dow, those big, big lumbering companies, they're down, coming up on 1% for the day. But the S&P 500 is down less than 50%, 0.5%, and then the NASDAQ is barely down. So this is a day when some kind of information came through the market that was interpreted by the market as being more adverse 
the larger the company. So this would be, I don't know. You see this happen once in a while where there's something that is going on in the market and it really doesn't affect small companies. As a matter of fact, I have an ultra small company myself and most of these, oh, this is really bad news, it's, not, it's nothing to a little small company. And so that's what you see going on here, something that is really shaking up the upper level of companies, but not really anything uh, above that. If you look over here, though, look at crude. Crude is taking a toilet break. It is down into 76. And that, it just plunged uh, at the midday. Now, remember, the, uh, the East Coast is one hour ahead of us. So the midday was back here. We're right in the midday now. But they, that's an hour ago. Do you see how that was this plunge in the oil prices? And that was just a lot of news coming through, just more data about the oil supplies on the high seas and in the refineries and all that kind of stuff. And all of that news is saying that it, we're just uh, we're swimming in oil. And that's obviously good news, or wonderful news for uh, people who drive anything that runs on gasoline or a distillate like diesel. And it's even good news for electricity prices, for energy prices in general, because a lot of people don't know that there many electric, of, of the old-fashioned electric generators that power the grid burn oil, uh, the, the old oil burners. So this is good news, uh, and it's going to ease up some of that price pressure, and this is also going to impact on the data coming out about inflation. We should probably see inflation calming back down into almost normal range with this uh, end of month data coming, th end of February data coming through. But I mean, this is beyond what I would have predicted, what most of my oil uh, experts would have said. This is just surprising how much oil is out there. And one of the reasons is because spigots are just opening up all over the world and those blockades we had on Russian oil and all that, well, those turned out to be a joke, just like most sanctions do. There are always ways around that. And that oil gets into the global supply one way or the other. And so oil prices down, gas prices will come down. Hell, that'll even impact on the price of uh, airline tickets here eventually. Gold, is, it looks like it's really a bold day for gold, but if you look at the actual percentage, it's a 0.19%, nothing there at all. Now, here's the interesting thing. You've got 10-year bond yields dropping. That would mean prices are going up. Well, that would probably be the result of equities, uh, holders of equities, getting rid of some of their equities and they are putting them into, they've been putting them into bonds through the morning. Price of bonds going up, that's why the yields are dropping. And <coughs> the prices are going up because money is flowing out of stocks. You see right here, look at these spark charts. Do you see that now we're looking at a rally off the low? That's, that's kind of like you know, our, our way of saying, we say there's a rally off the low. The bears had their fun, and now there's a round of, okay, there's some cheap stuff out there to buy. Let me grab it. And uh, that's why you're seeing the market trying to recover. 
I don't know how far it's going to go. It had another rally off a low here early in the mid-morning, and then that one fizzled. So we'll see what this one does later. Okay, so we got the bonds out of the way. And having a quick look over here, <coughs> Tokyo started out in good shape. But by the end of the day, it was fizzling. It just it barely finished above uh, flat. And so on uh, overall, nothing really happened on in Tokyo. And then when London Exchange opened, uh, it just it started up and then it just took a dive and it's kind of bounced. Yeah, it's finally dropping in, but there's a route there's right now, this is actually trading. They're still trading, so it's like parallel markets. So you're seeing a rally off the low here in the United States, here in the uh, U.S. exchanges and indexes, and you're also seeing a rally off the low over in London right now. And this is all happening at the same time because London hasn't closed for the day yet. So it looks like everyone's in kind of a difficult mood right now trying to figure out which way to go on on the markets. There's no question, though, at all, that these oil prices going down, that is some better assurance that despite what you may hear from some naysayers, we're not going into a recession. We're, we're going to, the global, globally, there is a, there's a recession going on now. And what some of the big houses have already said, we're in a global recession. And here in the United States, we're sitting here, well, we've, We've got through, got through the jacking up interest rates to stop the inflation, and now the economy can just simply pick up steam. So that's good news for you if you're going out for an internship or for a, uh, a career at the end of this sem semester. Which reminds me, if you're going to the internship fair, I'll be there. And if you need some motivation, just find me while I'm walking around, <clears throat> and I'll drag your ass up to someone and say, hire this person. Unless you really are a fool, then I won't. But that's not true for any of you. Let me show you something I did. And don't do this. <coughs> okay. This is a... Now, this is not a penny stock. But it's not a fabulous stock either. Okay, you see that it uh, closed last night at four dollars on the on the button, and then it opened at four oh two. Now it's slid a little bit, but look at that volatility. Do you see that spiking up and down? That is volatile as hell. And so we can say, okay, well, what's the price range? This thing has been as high as twelve thirty six. And it's as low and as low as three dollars and sixty cents over the last twelve months. In other words, this stock is much closer to its fifty-two week low than it is to its fifty-two week high. That's one reason why I would have a quick look at this stock. What would make me stop and look at it even more seriously? What do you see here? Is there some reason? Yeah. alongside that ridiculously high beta. The beta is saying this is a high risk, therefore high expected return stock. And yet that PE ratio is down in the toilet right now. There's another, that's, that's the big thing. 
This is an undervalued stock. Almost, uh, almost any trader would agree this is undervalued, whether they'd be as stupid as I was. And I did not buy the stock. I bought a risky instrument called a call option. I bought 12 of them. Okay, now, there's another reason why this stock, yes, this is a risky stock, but there's something else I'm looking at here, too. Two things I'm looking at. Yeah. Well, do you see that, that the price, first of all, the, the EPS, or rather the, yeah, the earnings per share is positive. This company makes a profit, for God's sake. And then the dividend, which doesn't even make sense. This dividend is $5.11, and the company made only $1.09 per share. So this company is paying a dividend that is about five times what it made to pay a dividend, which is just insane, unless this stock, the, the, they actually firmly believe that they dug into retained earnings to keep that dividend up there, and they're going to be able to recover it. This is a signal from inside the company that they themselves are bullish on this company right now. Is that enough for anyone in the right mind to invest in it? Not at this beta. I mean, this is a, this is a stupid mis uh, move I've made. But sometimes that stupid move, usually a stupid move, ends up in you saying, oh, dear God, I'm going to die. But once in a while, you make a surprising amount of money off a move like this. In this case, if it recovers to $5 a share, those 12 really cheap call options that I spent $50 to buy are going to be worth about $2,000. That's uh, so greater the risk, the greater the expected return. You don't take risk for no reason. You expect something out of it. Uh, anyway, okay, so there you are. Now, looking at something a little more normal now, I've gone through... I've gone through uh, Pfizer, I've gone through Walmart, I went through Kellogg's, uh, Target, and I'm thinking of other industries that I might be interested in having a look at. Um, uh, well, let's do something that always... Lockheed Martin, do you know what Lockheed Martin is? It's an S&P 500 company, it's a war company. They build the, the engines of war. That's their job. They build a lot of things that are for civilian uses too, but their core business is that they build the engines of death. And that is, uh, there's, and war is always, always good business. Is this a safe or a risky stock? Madam? Safe. Safe. Like I said, war is always in business. Uh, so they are a big, huge S&P 500 monster. Their P.E. ratio is on the low side. It agrees with the beta. Maybe a little undervalued the stock is, but in general, this is just an old heavy. Lockheed has been around for decades. Hell, almost a century now. Look at this earnings per share. $21.66 for each share of the stock. 
In other words, you take the total profit, and I keep repeating these, and it begins to kind of sink into you as I repeat it. You take the total profit divided by the number of shares outstanding, and there you are at $21.66 a share. That is a huge per share profit. Massive dividend, $12 a share. You buy a share of this stock for $461, you are pretty much assured that you're gonna get a $12 check in the mail. So in other words, you will get a dividend yield of 2.61%, along with any capital gain yield, and Yahoo is predicting it's not gonna be a major capital gain on this one. And I'm gonna do this again, just because that's the best way to learn it, just see me keep doing something over and over. So I'm gonna take the, if you hold it for one year, Yahoo says that it will be worth $482.81 in a year, divided by what you're going to pay for today for the one-year holding, $461.70, and then you're going to subtract one, and then, then times that by 100 to get a percentage. So Yahoo is saying that the capital gain for a one-year holding period, the annual gain is 4.57%. Now you add to that, that 2.62%, 2.61% for the dividend part of your gain, the dividend yield, and you get an overall total holding period return, one-year holding period return of 7.18%. It's not spectacular, but then again, the beta is low. Lower risk, lower expected return. This is more one of those portfolio addition, additions that you would, you would inject this into your portfolio to, uh, if you are a conservative investor, you're interested in a dividend check and all that kind of stuff. It's a decent kind of... Uh, company for that for those kinds of investors it's not an exciting company but it is there I'll show you one more here on the other side let's look at a tech a high tech company American micro devices AMD holy cow what the hell is going on with AMD today oh <laughs> so would you say AMD you you in case you don't know, American Micro Devices makes chips in competition with Intel. AMD and Intel. Intel is obviously a bigger, heavier company. AMD is uh, a little bit newer kid on the block. They have some neat innovations that they're doing, and they've got some good partnerships. But what would you say on this one? Is this a risky or a not risky company? Risky. Yeah, that one is risky AF. That's near two. In other words, you put this into a portfolio, it's going to swing about twice as hard as the market <coughs> over on average. And it's got, the EPS is saying the same thing. Yeah, this is an overvalued stock, but it doesn't pay a dividend. So that's one of the reasons it's so risky. The only way you're going to make money is if that stock price goes up. And that's greater risk, greater expected return. The company's plowing every penny it makes back into operations. You have a pot, it's profitable, it's making a $1.57 a share, 
but gee, Zoe, and look at the volume today. Some news came through. Do you see that volume is way above the, it's almost already, and we're not closed at, end, at the end of the day. It's almost a third higher than it normally is, it has normally been over the past year. Lord, though, it's right about, see that 52 week? It's gone from about 54, 57 to 132.96. So it's actually sitting right in the middle of its 52 week range. So it's kind of hard to call where it will go from here. But yeah, that is a pretty heavy duty company right there. You're taking a lot of risk with something like this. Is it worth the risk? That's your choice. You have to decide what kind of an investor you are. Are you a risk-taking investor so that you can expect a higher return? Or are you a conservative investor and willing to sacrifice some expected return just so there's not as much chance that you're going to get killed? But look at that. All day, it's just been raging upward. Now, there's some profit-taking right here off that top. But even at that, you're still up 8.8 and two-thirds percent for the day. So, and also, notice the bid ask. See that volume there? Notice that the bid ask spread is tight, just a penny, which is because of all that volume. There's so much trading that the uh, brokers and dealers and uh, all that kind of stuff don't need a lot of bid ask spread to make money off this stock today. There's a lot of competition among the market makers to get orders processed. So, you know, it's, a, it's one of those risky stocks. And that's one of the things that I'll show you. Look at risky stocks, look at safe stocks, decide where you want to be. But if you buy stocks on their own, not putting them in a portfolio, these measures like beta, they mean nothing. Because beta is measuring how risky that stock is in a well-diversified portfolio. If you buy stocks on their own, they are much riskier. So if I'm seeing a, two, a beta of two on this in a portfolio, you hold this on its own, you're probably swinging four or five times the market. Uh, if you buy stocks, uh, just na naked, on, uh, naked stocks. Uh, so anyway, that's the context. Now, if you haven't done it already, bring out your laptops or whatever you have to get Excel. I want you to get ready for Excel. And I'm going to walk you through accessing financial statements. Once you've booted up and gotten yourselves ready for this, here's where we start. Now, this is a site, uh, you probably have a ton of bookmarks anyway. And this is one of those sites that's just one that you need to have. It's sec.gov. This takes you to the front page of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And even to this day, years after I finished my business with them, I, I kind of go here with some trepidation. 
but that's sec.gov. Now, you're going to walk over here to filings, company filing search. Once you're in the company filing search, you can type in the name of a company or you can type in the trading symbol or the CIK. As I told you in the last class, the CIK is sort of like a, a unique numerical identifier of a security. Common stock, preferred stock, bond, whatever. That's who, I mean, how many people know CIKs? Here's a danger, and I'm going to show you this right off the bat. It's better if you know the trading symbol than just the company. Watch what happens if I just type in a company like Sears. And I take a stab. The problem is that I might come up with the wrong Sears, the wrong company. Last couple of years ago, I typed in a company name because I couldn't remember the company trading symbol and I was too lazy to go find it. I typed it in. I got the information, and I traded on the financial information I, I saw. It turned out it wasn't the right company. And God, I lost some money on that one. So it's better if you have the trading symbol of the company. We're going to do Walmart, WMT. That way I know that I've got the right one at the top of the list. Now here's where you have to go through. You've got your 8Ks. Uh, uh, announcements of non-recurring events, notifications of non-recurring events. Now on this plus symbol where it says 10K, you'll get the Qs and Ks. If you want to get to the Excel, you click on the little rectangular box that says filing. Now that takes you to a window where you can actually click on the file, the actual paper and see that monster I showed you last time. But if you click on this blue box that says download, um, no, interactive data, I'm sorry, interactive data. The little blue box there. And that'll take you over to this page. Now you can just visually look at the income statement, balance sheets, and statement of cash flows, all that. Or you can actually click on this little link right here, view Excel document, and it will download all of the company's financial statements. And this is true for any public company. Hundreds, hundreds of thousands of companies, they all have to make it so that anyone can get the Excel version of the documents they created. Okay, so now here we are. The first page you're going to see is sort of like the summary there, the cover page. And this, by the way, one thing that might be useful to you, some uh, projects you get in some classes, what is the company's uh, address? Right here. This has to be, by law, the exact address of the company on the cover page. So if you need that for some, for some question in uh, some class, that is the horse's mouth. Where it has been disclosed by the company 
in compliance with the law, the Securities Exchange Act, Securities Act of 1933. So that's the best place. And what's the company's official name? That is the official name of the company right there. It has to be. So if you're looking for the original source, you don't go uh, search Google, what's, where's the address of it? You use this. Because oftentimes companies will have operations in different places and they'll have something that's not their core official legal address that will be found by a search engine. This, you're guaranteed. So I can't emphasize that enough. Now the next thing <coughs> for our purposes in this class in general, you need three, and like I showed you last time, look at all of these different financials that, this, that a normal company pushes out. It's got something for everybody. You could even do a find if you needed some weird, something like executive compensation. You might even just use a find and say executive compensation, and it will highlight the sheets where that is where that's shown or mentioned. But for us, the th three core statements are the income statement, the balance sheet, this, and the statement of cash flows. Now the statement of retained earnings might be useful to us too, but the core statement, the, the biggie, is the balance sheet. Everything that you do in accounting flows to the balance sheet. You calculate your income. Uh, your net profit. That is just a side calculation to put a number into the statement of retained earnings. The statement of retained earnings is just a side calculation to go into the stockholders' equity section of the balance sheet. The statement of cash flows, that's nothing but a side calculation to get the numbers to put into the balance sheet as well, the cash and the depreciation and all that. So this is a monster. We want that balance sheet. We also want, now here's one of the problems you're going to run into. <clears throat> it used to be that all companies had to say the, use the same names for everything. Uh, the income statement. It was the income statement. Now you'll see that thing called all kinds of different things. Balance sheet as well. It's even worse than that. Within a, a financial statement, some of those lines, we used to have to use all the same words for a line. Now they can use, it'll drive you crazy sometimes. Where in the hell is this number that I need? And it'll be there, but they'll just call it something else, like earnings before interest and taxes. That's EBIT. It's also operating income. It's, uh, it's got operating profit. So you've got to be careful. Think about what you're looking for. Okay, now. Consolidated statements of earnings. That's a fancy way of saying income statement. So we're going to want that one. That one we don't want. Come over here a little bit. I've got to scoot here to use a small screen. There's the balance sheet. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to drag that balance sheet. Wait. How did that happen? Oh, okay. There it is. I'm going to grab it and I'm going to drag it over here and put it next to my income statement so that those two are together. You're going to see why I need to do this in a minute. But you can move those sheets around anywhere you want. As a matter of fact, sometimes I'll just highlight all the sheets I don't want and do a mass deletion so that they're not interfering. But the other thing that I want is the statement of cash flows. 
balance sheet, income statement. God, where the hell is it? There. Yeah, statement of cash flows. So I'm going to drag that one over here with my other two so that they're all together. Now, you're going to see why I'm doing this in a minute. It has to do with doing calculations very quickly. You're also going to see something else that I do. I'm going to put in one sh a sheet, a worksheet. See how I did that? Just click between two, insert. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to call this my scratch sheet. That's a place where I can do partial or intermediate calculations. So that I'm never having to pull a calculator out for anything at all. Now, go back through here. There's your balance sheet. There's your income statement. Just start here. All through this, this statement right here, there's one thing that you've got to be a little bit careful about. It used to be that all companies had to report a line right after cost of sales. Most companies don't do it anymore because they're not required to. It goes in here, and I'm going to insert a row, and I'm, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to say gross income. And all the gross income is, all that does is take your uh, equals, your net total net revenues minus your cost of goods sold. <clears throat> In other words, gross income is telling us how much of every dollar that went into the cash register survived paying the wholesale price. Now that's kind of a useful number to know. And then I'm going to put the uh, put that. Uh, the cursor on that, and I'm going to grab the little cross right here and pull it across so that it calculates out. Now, just out of curiosity, are most of you familiar with that little trick right there? Dragging, I, I thought that, I mean, that's kind of almost like stupid pet tricks kind of stuff. But if you're not, I'm being, a, I'm being pedantic here. I'm making sure that everyone's on the same page so that if some of you are not as familiar, you are, you're, you're still with us with the, in this. So that, and that's how I'm going to do it through this semester. As you become more sophisticated doing that uh, Excel crash course, and by the way, I thank you for how many of you are actually signed up for that. That's pretty amazing to me. Uh, but anyway, so we've got the gross income in there. Now, interestingly enough, um, if I'm remembering right, Target actually has that line in there. Most companies don't anymore. Another line that they don't have, that they used to be required to have, that we need, is depreciation expense, depreciation and amortization. Most companies don't put that in there anymore either. We're going to leave it out because we can get it in the statement of cash flows at the time we need it. Okay, so here we go. And we drill down. Now, operating income. 
Now, after you pay your suppliers, you have all these bills, wages, salaries, the light bill, internet bill, your commissions, meals and entertainment, advertising. That is all captured in SG&A, Selling General and Administrative Expenses. Back in the day, we had to break this down. And now it's like everywhere on everywhere in here, parts of it are. But overall, uh, the whole thing is summarized in the SGNA line in most companies. But this operating income, it's all what it's telling us is okay, after you've paid your wholesale, that gets you your gross. And then after you pay all of your other bills, that gets you your operating. So this is the line that has survived all, almost all of your debt obligation. Remember I told you the debt holders have the prior claim? The income statement is actually showing you the order of those claims. We're not even near where the shareholders get to have some money. We're just showing all the different categories. And then we survive to the operating income. Another name for that is earnings before interest and taxes. Another name is EBIT. That uh, you could see it called all kinds of things. Now we get to the big 800 pound gorilla. What you hold, owe to those from whom you borrowed. The debt, <coughs> the bondholders. Interest expense. And they, and also, in this one, they're showing, they're separating out, interestingly enough, their lease expenses, which are a kind of debt. And they're also showing any income they made from, uh, from their investments in other things. Okay? So, why is that a negative? Well, because these are positives and you're going to subtract them. By making this a negative, you add it. So in other words, I paid $500,000 in interest, expense, and leases, but I made $50,000 off my investments. So I'm going to subtract only $450,000. It's a kind of a weird way to do this. Walmart's not quite as, you, you won't see this too often, but anyway. So the interest net is this plus this minus this. So this number, 1836, $1.836 billion, is how much you're going to subtract net. And then you've got some adjustments here. Oh, God. And then, okay. Income before, there it is. Do some more gyrations. Income now you've paid everyone but Uncle Sugar, Uncle Sam. And that's your last liability. It has to be paid before the shareholders can call dibs. Now, in, uh, you'll hear me. The term that is frequently used in corporate America, we don't say uh, income before income taxes. We just use, say pre-tax. That's the word. You'll hear it in your lives as corporate professionals, probably, or in investment news and analysis. 
we just say pre-tax. Okay, so Walmart had pre-tax of $18.696 billion. And then you look at your taxes. Walmart paid $4.756 billion in taxes on pre-tax of $18,696. Just really quickly here, as I had told you before, the marginal tax bracket, the tax on the last dollar a corporation earned, as well as what the last dollar was taxed at for rich people, rich households, was for many, many years 39%. That was even down from what it was in the 1950s and 60s when it was 70%. So it ended up down, clear down to, to 39% that was negotiated in the 1990s. But then in 2017, the conservative president and the conservative Congress brought it down to 21% on the top. Almost no company pays 21%. For one thing, that's a marginal tax rate, not an average. But if you were to look, what is Walmart, what does it pay on average for as a tax bill? Well, that would be 4756 provision 4756 divided by pre-tax of 18696. So Walmart actually surprisingly pays, and what, well, didn't you say it was 21%? Well, they, there's also state taxes and all that. Walmart is surprisingly pays its share. If I showed you the average tax of many of the Fortune 500 companies, they pay either little, none, no, or even negative tax. They use all kinds of tricks to avoid taxes entirely or almost entirely. Walmart, surprisingly, is what we might call a good corporate citizen. Yeah, we made this much, we pay our tax on it. We don't do jiggles and twists and loopholes, we just pay our tax. So that's an interesting thing, you know, for all the stuff that you hear, the negatives of Walmart, they actually are a pretty damn good corporation uh, in a lot of ways. And as I said last time, I'm, you're listening to someone who's, I'm a Walmart hoe, I'm there every day. Matter of fact, I'm going there after classes today. Uh, so if you want to hang out with me at Walmart, yeah, that'll, that, that we'll have a good time, <coughs> or not. Not probably. Okay, let me get out of Oh, I didn't mean to do that. I meant to minimize. Okay. And then, finally, there's your net income. Their net income was $4.756 billion. Now, you'll learn this again next week. Uh, yeah, maybe it's next week. If I took that 4.756, <coughs> oh, duh, you're right, you're right, did, did, did. My bad, let me, where the hell, thank you. Always watch me, like I said, when you get to my age, don't keep living, just have them put you in a home or something. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, 
And what's scary is it's always been this way. I taught math at Ohio State for eight years. God, I messed up a lot of kids. Uh, I mean, isn't that supposed to? Oh, shut up. I get so grouchy with people. I, I won't do that with you. Okay, it's 13 uh, billion, 940 million, divided by, now I'm going to divide it by their revenue, which was 567,762, divided by 567,762. What this number I'm going to get tells you is out of every dollar that Walmart took into its cash registers, how many cents survived to belong to the shareholders? Because that net income line is the residual income that belongs to the shareholders of the company. Survey says 2.446%. In other words, two, about two and a half cents out of every dollar that Walmart took in made it to the point where it belongs to the shareholders. And then Walmart can plow that back into the company, give it its dividends. But that sounds like a pretty pathetic amount. You're going to see companies that have 8, 12, 20% net margins, as we call it. And don't sweat it. I go through this again. I'm showing you how we do it, and then you'll see a reason when we do it formally. Now, that sounds pretty pathetic, right? Yeah, but it's not. You see, because it has to do with the insane volume of business that they do. There are chains like, have you ever been to an Aldi's? You know, I hate Aldi's. They put your box of food on the floor and they make you pay a quarter to rent a shopping cart. Uh, but it's a Dollar Tree. These companies per store make a pathetic margin. But if you have 10,000 of those stores, you have an insanely profitable business. For one thing, because the aggregate is huge, and also because the whole chain can't collapse if one store collapses. It's like a, it's like a diversification of your risk. Walmart is very much the same way. They spread their superstores all through the country and parts of the world, and hence, they are assured that every store making a little scratch will add up to make a huge amount of scratch overall. That's their business model. So they're not trying to make a massive net margin. They're just cruising along, and that's one of the reasons their beta is so low. I mean, it's just they're not trying to solve the problems of the world. They're not trying to make their shareholders rich beyond their wildest dreams this year or next year. They just keep cruising. And so that is that. Okay, so now I'm going to take you through a little bit of an exercise. I will, let, let, me, let me point out something here. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the balance sheet. The balance sheet, the, this is current assets, this whole block up here. Now, I'm, I'm probably telling you what you've already heard. These are highly liquid assets. We say that it is liquid if it comes due or is gained within a year. It's liquid if it comes due or is gained within a year. It's illiquid in accounting kind of concept if it is gained or due in more than a year. 
Now, here is the definition of liquidity. Write this down exactly because on the web, on the web, you'll get incorrect definitions. As a matter of fact, I do it as a multiple choice and I give you all the incorrect de definitions that are on the web. So you have to tease out the one that's correct. Liquidity is the efficiency with which an asset can be converted to another asset. Liquidity is the efficiency with which an asset can be converted to another asset. Liquidity is the efficiency with which an asset can be converted to another asset. This dollar bill, cash, is highly liquid. Highly liquid. Because I can convert this into a cheeseburger at the McDonald's drive-thru. You are the McDonald's drive-thru cashier. May I McHelk you, McPlease? And I say, why McYes? I would McLike a McBurger. Well, McFine. McPull around to the McPay window. And I go around and I whip this out. Ah, damn. Where's my <laughs> burger? Where's my damn burger? Okay. <laughs> but you see, it's instantly. That's highly liquid. Now, however, you, sir, you are an asset, but you are highly illiquid. Now, this dollar can't earn me anything because it's so liquid. But you, over your whole life, are going to make a lot of money, a lot of return. But you are highly liquid. I can't convert you into anything else. Well, you know, I could put you in a blender, or, you know, throw in some uh, mango and all that, and you'd come out. But what can I sell? What's your first name? Caleb. I can't sell a Caleb smoothie. No one's going to, well, there are some. I mean, you know, like those cannibal type people. but. Mmm, good, Caleb, I like that flavor. <laughs> Try to focus. Okay. <laughs> but you see, you're highly illiquid. The same is true for a lot of the asset. Its liquidity is going to determine your expected return. Highly illiquid assets have higher expected return than highly liquid assets. That's why it's uncomfortable when a company has too much liquidity. In other words, too much up there in the current assets. Because that tells us that the company is not using that, those funds efficiently. Because we need the company to, as much as possible, move its money from liquidity to the illiquid, higher return assets. I'll give you a quick uh, real life example of this. More than a few years ago, I think it's like five years ago or something, Netflix borrowed a massive amount of money on 15-year notes. In other words, they were in the illiquid part of the liability. See down here, long-term liabilities? See these? They borrowed a couple of billion dollars, and they paid out the butt for it. The coupon was, it was like, it was junk. It was called junk bonds because Netflix was, Netflix was pretty risky. 
And then, where did those, uh, that, those billions of dollars show up? They showed up in cash. And they sat there. And we were all like, are you, are you nuts? Why are you putting, you're paying all this interest, and yet you're putting it in cash that's not going to earn you anything. What the hell are you doing? And they gave kind of an explanation. They said, well, we need it highly liquid so that we can take advantage of, we need, when we see a script, we want to bring it to production within a, uh, within a couple of weeks because some other service is going to do a show like it and we'll lose. We want to do a movie. We want to buy a studio. We need to strike quickly. They claimed that that liquidity allowed them much more flexibility in rapid investments. So, you know, we kind of bought it, but we were still thinking, you know, you're paying all this interest on this money that you, is for long-term purposes, but you're not using it for long-term purposes. Now, let me show you something. Current assets and current liabilities. We have different metrics. I'll show you one when we get to ratios, but there's one I'm going to do right here on the, on the scratch sheet. On the scratch sheet, I'm going to write the, uh, what, what was their current year? It was 2022, 2021. 2022 against 2021. And I'm just going to repeat this here. You don't have to do this, but I'm going to show you. What I'm going to do is here I'm going to put current assets. And I'm going to put current liabilities. And then I'm going to do something called net working capital. Net, and I'll call it operating working capital. And I won't distinguish too much on that. And then I'm going to do one last line. Change. Whoops. Change in NOWC. Let me show you. And uh, like I said, I relied that the, you were shown this before. <clears throat> but when you post, when you postpone revenue, that means that you've lost money that was shown that you made on your on your income statement. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to write the current assets equals, and then I'm going to go here to the balance sheet, and I'm going to say, find me my current assets. Right there. That is, a, that is a, uh, essentially a call by reference. In other words, that, you see why I put those sheets together like that? So that I could quickly jump between them. And then I can skid that one over so that I get 2021s. Now I'm going to do the same thing with current liabilities. Equals, and I'll go over here to the balance sheet, and I'll get my current liabilities. Where the hell are they? Oh, there they are. 87,379. And then I'm going to scoot that one over. Now, the net operating working capital is current assets minus current liabilities, like that. So in other words, in the most recent year, 
Walmart's current liabilities exceeded by about $6.3 billion, their current assets. One way or the other. Now let's scoot that over to the year before. The year before, their current assets uh, were exceeded by their current liabilities by only about $2.6 billion. The change is what we're interested in. Equals the current years minus the previous years. So in other words, their net operating working capital went down by $3.7 billion. That matters to us. The reason that matters is that that means that Walmart actually pulled in $3.7 billion. It sounds like it doesn't make sense. But you see, whenever a company has more current liabilities than current assets, that means that it's not paying its bills more than it's not getting its revenue. God, that's confusing. <laughs> but look at what Walmart's doing. And I, we actually saw this, I do a cash management course. We saw it in that cash management course too. This isn't an accident. This is a policy of cash management. They postpone paying bills and they more rapidly get their revenue. Let me explain this to you, like this to you. And I'm sure all, at least most of you know that I, when I'm not a professor, I'm a professional artist and photographer. I go to shows and I sell my artwork. It's pretty expensive. A few years ago, to boost my sales, I started extending credit. I have a lot of people come into my, my exhibit area and they look at the stuff and I know they want it, but then they look at the price tag and they freak. So I quickly go up to them and I say, you really like this, don't you? And then I start my shtick with the brooding, sad, suicidal artist who's, and you know, my soul is hurting and I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. And, all and I said, <coughs> and I started saying, it's $800. I can make it so that you pay 200 now and the other 600 is you pay it over the next year and it works. The problem is that on that income statement of mine, I have to say I pulled in $800. In reality, that $800 in revenue is split between uh, cash 200 and accounts receivable going up 600. So every time receivables go up, I am showing that I, was, I lost money, that I said I got. So increases in current assets are not good. But on the other hand, when I postpone paying a bill, I still say I paid it, but I didn't. So when liabilities increase, current liabilities go up, that actually is, means that I am not losing money that I said I did in the expenses section. So in other words, as the networking capital 
drops, I'm actually making, pulling in money. That's what matters to us in finance. We don't really care about that net income. We care about free cash flow. And Walmart created three, wow, almost, yeah, almost $4 billion in free cash flow that is not represented on the income statement of the company. That's one of the reasons I say we can't look at income statements. We have to look deeper and we have to pull numbers and twist a little bit. In this case, net operating working capital of this company is nicer. Uh, there's your net operating working capital. So now, that is the first step we need to take. Now we're going to look also over here at the statement of cash flows. For one thing, we can see the depreciation here somewhere. And we can see another number, capital expenditures, down here from, inve from investing activities. Now let me go into this. Uh, I, I forgot I was going to bring in some of my equipment today. A few years back, when I decided that I was going to have to get back into the world of portrait and glamour photography, I bought a lens that costs $4,500. That's a lot of money. And I cannot put that on my income statement. Even though it actually happened, I'm not allowed to. I have to capitalize it and then depreciate out a certain amount of that every year. So if I took it as a straight line, it was a five-year depreciation life. If I straight-lined it, every year I would put depreciation in the income statement of $900 for five years. That's not what happened. What happened was I paid, I lost $4,500. Straight up, I lost, it's gone. But that, I can't show that. So in other words, if we in finance want a realistic picture of a company, we've got to get rid of that depreciation crap and we've got to replace it with what actually happened, the capital expenditure itself. Now, you're saying, well, why don't we just take it out of the income statement there at the top, fat boy? We can't do that because that depreciation expense actually serves as a tax shield for some of my revenue. So, of course, I'm going to subtract that $900 because that's $900 off what I actually, well, the revenue, and so it protects me from some taxes. But as soon as I've gotten after the net income line, i got to get that back in here. So, the culmination. Free cash flow is what we are after in a corporation. This cannot, this is not the accountants. This is our holy grail for whether or not we are going to consider an investment based upon the money or the funds. The free cash flow, what you'll want to do, and this is an odd little twist. You're going to take the revenue minus the expenses. Which is basically EBIT 
operating income, op inc. And then you're going to take a multiply that by one minus the corporate tax rate. This is the assumption that corporations will pay 21% as it is now. And this is what we call net operating profit after taxes. The great, the, the big kahuna, no pact. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, fat boy, where's the interest expense? We don't go rat's ass about that. We are looking for operations. Once we get down to free cash flow, we'll know whether we can pay our bill, pay that, pay the debt holders or not. But we've got to first of all get operating action out of, dealt with. And now, once we've done that, we'll add back the depreciation expense. We'll add back because it never really happened. We allow it in here, in this whole mess here, because it's going to create a tax shield. But once we've gotten that taken care of, we've got to add it back because it never happened. But as a consequence of that, we have to still take away what actually did happen, the capital expenditures. Now, on an income now on, in our world, what we do is we look at the bottom line of the investing activities in the statement of cash flows. And don't sweat it. We're going to do one of these again on Monday. We're just going to take another corporation and we're going to break it down. And then we got one more thing to do minus the change in net operating working capital. And that is free cash flow. And it's actually. You know, when I put it up here, it's a holy cow, what do I do? Don't sweat that, okay? Simply because all we're going to do is we're just going to do it in Excel. Just pick the numbers off and hand them over. So watch this. I'm going to do this on the scratch sheet. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to say tax. And I'm going to say that's 21%. That way I've got it up there. Always don't put numbers into your formulas if you can possibly avoid it. The reason is this. That way you can change the number and you don't have to go through your formulas and fix it. So here we go. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to get EBIT, which was that operating income. Go over here, that equals, and we're going to get where the hell, oh, here it is. Operating income, right there. And then we're going to bring that over so we get both years. Now, we want to get uh, the depreciation expense. And this one we get over here. In the statement of cash flows, it's, where the hell is it? There it is, right there. Oops, I didn't do that right. Let me do it again. Equals, and get the statement of cash flows, depreciation expense, 
right there. Now, by the way, I'm going to upload this to ReggieNet tonight or tomorrow so that you have a full sheet if you're getting behind. And then we'll copy it over. What else do we need? We're going to need the capital expenditures. And so we'll get capital expenditures. And we come over here, equals. Now, watch, watch what I do here. I'm going to go here to the financing activities. Watch out, because they're going to state this as a negative number. What you have to do is you have to fix that. See it? It's already a negative number there. And you're going to minus it. You don't want to do that. You want to use the positive of that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, use the absolute value. By the way, if this looks daunting, this is one of the hardest parts of the course is right here. So don't sweat it too much. And I'll scoot that one over too. <coughs> and finally, we've got the net change in net operating working capital, so we can say free cash flow. Come over here, equals your EBIT times 1 minus your tax rate. And then you're going to have add back your depreciation expense. And then we're going to subtract capital expenditures. And then we're going to subtract change in net operating working capital. And what you'll see is free cash flow for Walmart for last year, for 2022. Holy cow. Got $12 billion in positive free cash flow. From that, they can pay dividends. They can pay their interest expense. Hell, they can go out and buy a stake at Morton's. This is one of the reasons for years I was trashing Tesla. Because if you looked at the free cash flow, it was negative. Now, this isn't an abstract accounting number. Whatever is there is what you have to pay your bills. That's it. So when I saw negatives on Tesla, they had to get that money from somewhere. That was why the stock price was being supported. It was because they were getting the money funneled in through the brokers and through foreign investors to keep them going. There you go. That's how we do it. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.